play going on there at the very throne of God, the center of the universe. We don't know exactly what it's all like, but I do know that the angels in heaven are singing today. It says that the angels in heaven sing at one center being propped to repentance. And uh, today we're going to have a baptism. Uh, Abbey Rome Hill at 5 o'clock this evening, for any of you who might want to be there to see us drowner. Oh, you're supposed to let them up. But that's only if they repent. So, you, you know, you have to make a judgment call sometimes. <laughs> anyway, it's a, a happy day when someone realizes they truly need God's way and are committing themselves to it and setting a lifetime toward becoming part of the kingdom of God. So five o'clock for that. I just talked to Nelson a few minutes ago on the phone and he's all morose. He's been down there nearly a week now and wants to come home, which I told him would be the case. It always is. He gets down there for a little while and visits the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids or whoever's around and uh, then it's done, time to come home, and he missed out on our 15-year storm, and now he's missing out on a baptism, so he's feeling all sorry for himself, but uh, that's all right. Airline tickets are already set for two weeks, so uh, they'll be back when scheduled, as far as I know. Well, last week, I started into the uh, calendar. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon last week, it can be a very, very confusing thing, whether you're just looking at the calendars the world uses, or whether you're trying to discern uh, what God would have us do from Scripture and from the heavens, um, because of the 365 and a quarter day year that we currently have. Uh, it's, it's not divisible by anything, and your new moon uh, occurrences or on average, uh, 29.53, I think it is, days between those. And, but sometimes it's 29 days and so many hours, and sometimes it's 30 days and so many hours, and it varies every month. What the Jews decided to do was just take an average, which they call a molad. Uh, it doesn't reflect what's actually happening in the heavens, it just reflects an average. So they like to do things differently than what they see in the heavens uh, and, and do it in many, many different ways. But I mentioned as well the prophetic year, which is in the Bible, and I, I cited scriptures in Revelation and I think Daniel, to show that there are some specific time periods prophesied that encompass a 42-month time a 1260-day time and a three-and-a-half-year time, which coincide. And for that to be, the only way possible would be if we at that time have a 360-day year. Now, I said we need to go back into history to understand. And I think it is quite demonstrable <clears throat> that there was a 360-day year originally, and I want to go into more detail on that because it's one thing for me to say it, uh, 
and another to show that it indeed was the case. But we need to have that understanding and that background in order to understand God's original intent, where things are going next in prophecy, and then we have the interim time, which has fluctuated perhaps more than once, but settled on 365 and a quarter. And there are ways of showing that this occurred. Now, first of all, <coughs> recall that the prophecies were basically written uh, in the time frame of 800 to 600 B.C. Uh, so that's r- roughly a time period they were written. And they mention <coughs> uh, the prophecies that we're talking about to one degree or another. They talk about the end time a great deal, and in fact, that's what they're all pointed at, whether it be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, or who, Daniel. Uh, They all point to this time that we are currently in and approaching. So, if they wrote those prophecies at that time and understood a 360, Perhaps it changed during the days of their prophecies, and I think there would be a good reason for that. But they at least understood, and God inspired them to write about something that is to come (coughs) that would be at 360. So they apparently knew of, perhaps used the 360-day year, And perhaps it changed during the days of some of those prophets. We'll look at that. Now today, we have eclipses at odd and varying times. They don't come every month. They come, in a way, haphazardly. I want to read a brief uh, section here from Astronomy Magazine. And this is written by... Richard Talcott, the associate editor of that magazine. This is a question and answer section. I think I referred to it last week, but I found it. Here is a question asked of the magazine. I realize that the moon does not exactly follow the elliptic in its orbit around the earth. It varies somewhat month to month, and that's why you have a variation in days between 29 and 30. So it's not always the same. Then he goes on, But if it did, would Earth see a solar and a lunar eclipse every month? If it had a true pattern and didn't vary, would we have a lunar eclipse every month? Now, If we had a 360-day year, uh, that would be the case. He explains that right here. The short answer is yes. If the moon orbited Earth in the same plane that Earth orbited the sun, sky gazers could enjoy a lunar and solar eclipse every month. Unfortunately, the two orbital planes are tipped about five degrees from each other, So lunar and solar eclipses occur infrequently. With that tip or tilt of five degrees, they don't line up every month. But he says if they were on the same plane and stayed in an orbit that was steady, that would happen. 
He goes on to say, but there's a catch. If the two orbits were in the same plane, total solar eclipses would be visible only from the tropics. So it'd be all lined up exactly the same on the same plane. So it would be a total eclipse, he explains, at the tropics. Then as you go north or south from uh, the equator, you would still see an eclipse, but it wouldn't be total because you'd be at a, a little different angle the further north or south you went. But they could still enjoy partial solar eclipse, like the one this December 25th. I don't know what year this was now. And those near Earth's poles would never see a solar eclipse of any kind. Now, I've lived in Alaska, and I've observed people who live at the North Pole. They primarily eat seals and whales and some fish. And some of them eat caribou that range somewhat further north, not that far north. But I don't think God ever intended people to live that far north in this day and age, or he would have provided a way for them to provide food, clean food, (laughs) uh, without having it shipped in. Now, the oil drillers can go up there, but they have regular supply lines that bring them everything they need. But to live up there... And to eat a proper diet would be impossible. So, they wouldn't see an eclipse, but so what? (laughs) It's dark up there when you get that far north all winter, and it's light all summer, and uh, it's just not hospitable. That's not even talking about mosquitoes and polar bears. So anyway, I wanted to, uh, to read that to you. The astronomers recognize that things would be different if they were on the same plane. Now, he's still dealing with a 29.53 average and did not address the 30 days, but that would make it even more so if if the orbit was a 30-day orbit. Now, I also cited last week... Emmanuel Velikovsky, uh, from his book, Worlds in Collision. Some of you may have, may have read this, uh, this book. It was very popular around Ambassador College back in the 60s, although I think they must have overlooked parts of it, uh, because it explains in here about the changes in the heavens. Now, if the heavens changed, does that impact God's faithfulness to us? I'll just drop that question on you. Think about it a little bit. If the heavens changed, is God unfaithful? We'll get to that a little later. Here's a chapter in Emmanuel Velikovsky's Worlds in Collision. It's entitled, The Year of 360 Days. And he says here, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'd have to read the whole thing, which I don't want to do and bore you with that, but I want to just pick out some excerpts. Uh, but he shows that there was indeed a year of uh, 360 days. He says, numerous evidences are preserved which prove that prior to the year of 365 and a quarter days, the year was only 360 days long. Uh, he says he starts in India, the text of the Veda period in India, 
know a year of only 360 days. He's going into ancient history here. The Veda speaks, uh, text speaks uniformly and exclusively of a year of 360 days. The Hindu year of 360 days is divided into 12 months of 30 days each. <clears throat> the text described the moon as crescent for 15 days and waning for another 15 days. They also say that the sun moved for six months or 180 days to the north and the same number of days to the south. The equinoxes and solstices occurred every 180 days. So that's India, that's Hindu. Uh, here's a passage from the Aryabhatiya, or however you would say it, an old Indian work on mathematics and astronomy. Quote, a year consists of 12 months, a month consists of 30 days, a day consists of 60 nadis, a nadi consists of 60 vinadikas, whatever that means. Uh, so a month of 30 days and a year of 360 days formed the basis of the early Hindu chronology used in historical computations. Uh, the sacerdotal year, like the secular year of the calendar, consisted of 360 days composing 12 lunar months of 30 days each. From approximately the 7th pre Christian century on, the year of the Hindus became 365 and a quarter days long. So he's saying that it had been historically 360 according to their records, and then in the 7th century prior to Christ, they changed it to 365 and a quarter. That's about the time of Hezekiah, or is the time of Hezekiah. <coughs> <coughs> He says the double system that they used was the imposition of a new time measure upon the old. The ancient Persian year, here's another culture, <clears throat> was composed of 360 days or 12 months of 30 days. In the 7th century, five Gotha days were added to the calendar. So the Persians had 360, and then in the 7th century B.C., they added five days. Uh, they showed 180 successive appearances of the sun from the solstice to solstice, just like we read about the Hindus. He says here then that Gotha days, the five, are five supplementary days added to the last of the 12 months to complete the year. For these days, no additional apertures are provided. Okay, and then we move to the Babylonian culture. It was composed of 360 days. The astronomical tablets from the period antedating the Neo-Babylonian Empire compute the year at so many days without mention of additional days. <clears throat> that the ancient Babylonian year had only 360 days was known before the cuneiform script was deciphered. Cetaceus wrote that the walls of Babylon were 360 furlongs in compass, as many as there had been days in the year. So they equated the length of the wall and built it uh, according to the days of the year. Uh, 
The zodiac of the Babylonians was divided into 36 decans, a decan being the space the sun covered in relation to fixed stars during a 10-day period. However, the 36 decans, with their decades, require a year of only 360 days. To divide it up that way, they had to have 360. He says, the astronomers of Babylon recognized a year of 360 days, and the division of a circle into 360 degrees must have indicated the path traversed by the sun each day in its assumed circling of the earth. Uh, and at that time, they didn't have any extra five days to be intercalated into the calendar. <clears throat> All right, another culture. Hope I'm not boring you too much reading. It's hard to follow reading sometimes, but uh, I think it's important to recognize that this was all over the world. Here is the Assyrian. Their year consisted of 360 days. A decade was called a Saurus. A Saurus consisted of 3,600 days. So a decade was 10 times 360. Assyrian documents refer to months of 30 days only and count such months from crescent to crescent. Uh, and cre by crescent, they mean from the time that the small crescent to the time that it becomes full and begins to decline, not just the, the first crescent that we refer to these days. Uh, and they said that the lunar month was explicitly computed as equal to 30 days. Then he goes to the Israelites. That would, should interest us. The month of the Israelites from the 15th to the 8th century before the present era was equal to 30 days. So he says from 1500 B.C. until the 8th century, 700s B.C., it was 30 days and 12 months that comprised a year. There is no mention of months shorter than 30 days, nor of a year longer than 12 months. It's not in the scriptures up until the days of Hezekiah. That the month was composed of 30 days is evidenced <clears throat> by Deuteronomy 34.8 and 21.13 and Numbers 20.29 where mourning for the dead is ordered for a full month. That's what those three scriptures give. That was Deuteronomy 34, 8, 21, 13, Numbers 20, 29. So it was ordered for a full month and is carried on for 30 days. What if the month was only 29 days and you're supposed to mourn a full month? Do you get a day off? Now, what, what happens then? The story of the flood, as given in Genesis, reckons in months of 30 days. We'll go to that in a little bit. I just read a paper this morning that tries to dispute this, but uh, I don't believe it's correct. Anyway, he says, The story of the flood reckons in months of 30 days. It says that 150 days passed between the 17th day of the second month and the 17th day of the seventh month. The composition of this text apparently dates from the time between the Exodus and the upheaval of the days of Uzziah. That's when it was written. 
The Hebrews observed lunar months. This is attested to by the fact that the new moon festivals were of great importance in the days of Judges and Kings. Uh, the new moon festival anciently stood on a level with that of the Sabbath. Never is it called a Sabbath, but it was mentioned along with holy days and Sabbaths as being highly important. He didn't say that, either. As these lunar months were 30 days long, with no t- months of 29 days in between, and as the year was composed of 12 such months with no additional days or intercalated months, the Bible exegetes, exegetes I can't, can't get it out right, uh, exegetes could find no way of re- reconciling the three figures. In other words, 354 days or 12 lunar months of 29 and a half days each. It isn't in there. Uh, 360 days or a multiplex of 12 times 30 and 365 and a quarter. Those don't all fit. But the, 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 the moon takes 354 days to go around the earth 12 times. And yet the earth goes around the sun 365 and a quarter days. So the lunar time and the earth to solar time is different. This creates all kinds of problems in calculating time. Let's finish this before we get to Genesis. The Egyptian year, another culture, was composed of 360 days before it became 365 by the addition of five days. The calendar of the Ebers Papyrus, a document of the New Kingdom, has a year of 12 months of 30 days each. In the ninth year of King Ptolemy, uh, 238 B.C., a reform party among the Egyptian priests met at Canopus and drew up a decree. Uh, They had discovered uh, that there were an extra five and a quarter days that they had to deal with. Now let's go on here. Um, the Greeks had the same thing. It says that uh, a fellow named Thales was regarded as a man who discovered the number of days in the year. As he was born in the 7th century B.C., it is not impossible that he was one of the first among the Greeks to learn the new length of the year. It was in the beginning of that century that the year achieved its present length. Uh, let's see. Despite their knowledge of the correct measure of the year and the months, the Greeks, after Solon and Thales, continued to keep to the obsolete calendar a fact for which we have the testimony of Hippocrates. That is, that seven years uh, contain 360 weeks. I'm not following that. Xenophon, Aristotle, and Pliny uh, said the same thing. The persistence of reckoning by 360 days is accounted for not only by a certain reverence for the earlier astronomical year, but also by its convenience for every computation. So the Greeks tried to stay with 360, but it wasn't up there anymore. We've, I've mentioned how easy it is to compute if you have a 360. <clears throat> 
The ancient Romans reckoned 360 days to the year. Plutarch wrote in his Life of Nuns that in the time of Romulus, in the 8th century, the Romans had a year of 360 days only. That was in the 7th century then that it apparently changed. On the other side of the ocean, uh, the Mayan year consisted of 360 days. Later, five days were added, and the year was then a ton, 365 day, uh, 360 days and five days. So they added it. Every fourth year, another day was added to the year. So they, they had to recognize the leap year with the quarter day extra there. So the Mayans as well. <clears throat> uh, in ancient South America, the year consisted of 360 days divided into 12 months. He cites the Peruvian year was divided into 12 moons of 30 days. Five days were added at the end later on. Thereafter, a day was added every four years to keep the calendar correct. He says, then we cross the Pacific. The calendar of the peoples of China had a 360 days divided into 12 months of 30 days. A relic of that system, something that still exists, is the still persisting division of the sphere into 360 day, uh, degrees. Each degree represented the diurnal advance of the earth on its orbit, or that portion of the zodiac, which passed over from one night to the next. And after 360 of those days, it changed back to where it had started, in the heavens. When the year changed from 360 to 365 and a quarter, the Chinese added five and a quarter days to their year, calling this additional period Keying. They also began to divide a sphere into 365 and a quarter degrees, adopting the new year length not only in the calendar, but in celestial and terrestrial geometry. That was fun, dividing that. Then he makes a, a summary statement here. <clears throat> All over the world, we find that there was a, at some time the same calendar of 360 days, and that at some later date, about the 7th century before the present era, five days were added at the end of the year as days over the year or days of nothing but they had to be recognized. And he says a change of five and a quarter days would not only be recognized by astronomers, but by farmers, because it would change the time crops were planted and, and it would cause a seasonal drift if you didn't somehow uh, calculate it. Let's see, is there anything else here I wanted? <coughs> he says, the reason for the universal identity of time, that is in all these cultures that we've examined, between the 15th and the 8th centuries, so he's saying that we have record from 1500 B.C. up till 800 B.C. of 360. Then you had a change. Uh, it was a change in the actual movement of the Earth on its axis and along its orbit and in the revolution of the moon during that historical period. The length of a lunar revolution must have been almost exactly 30 days, and I'd say it was, 
And the length of a year apparently did not vary from 360 days by more than a few hours. I doubt it varied at all, but he's just saying it, it was that, and it couldn't have been much different than that. Then a series of catastrophes occurred that changed the axis and the orbit of the Earth and the orbit of the moon in the ancient year after going through a period marked by disarranged seasons settled into a slow-moving year of 365 and a quarter. Uh, now, I think there's one more thing back here I wanted to turn to. And then we're about done with this part. We are done with it. When the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile, they brought with them their present calendar, in which the months are called by Assyrio-Babylonian names. And he quotes the Bible, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will do, or make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. Uh, all flesh will come to worship the Eternal from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. The new heavens, he says, means a sky with constellations or luminaries in new places. The, prop, the prop, prophet Isaiah promises that the new sky will be everlasting and that the months will keep, their, will keep forever their established order. Now, it's not what we've been reading in Revelation and Daniel. It'll go back, and then it will stay. But it apparently has changed in the meantime. And he even says, Daniel, the Jewish sage at the court of Nebuchadnezzar, king of the exile, when blessing the eternal, said to the king, speaking of God, Daniel said this, he changes the times and the seasons. Well, there's a statement in Daniel that God does change the times and the seasons. And he might be referring to changes that had occurred just before the exile with that which is to come, because Daniel refers to in chapter 12 the same period of time that Revelation discusses. So, quite a bit of evidence here. Uh, he goes on and mentions Japan and so on. And he mentions that uh, 687 B.C. seems to be the year that the confusion began to occur. 687 B.C. Well, that was in the days of Hezekiah. As you know, uh, God moved the sundial back ten degrees uh, to show... Hezekiah, that his word was true and he would do what he said he would do. Now, it may very well be that that was the final change. He hints in here that there were some small and minor changes that began to occur during the period of time when Israel was not obeying God and that a major change occurred and then stayed. Frank Nelty made a very good point about that. He said, every time that mankind grossly disobeyed God, their lives became more difficult. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and their lives immediately became more difficult. Mankind got into violence and all kinds of sins prior to the flood 
God sent the flood, and their lives became suddenly more difficult. How long can you tread water, as Bill Cosby put it? So, when you can't swim forever, you drown. So life became difficult and even impossible, unless you were on that ark. Now, would it make sense, then, that during the days of the prophets... Remember, Israel was doing that which every man leaned to, his own understanding. And that they were far from God. So the prophets were sent by God to give his understanding. But what did they do with the prophets? They stoned them. They hated them. They didn't believe they were bringing the truth. So they stoned the prophets. But the prophets were essentially saying to Israel in that day, you're going to go into captivity. Whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, any of them. They were predicting that would happen. And they were predicting it for the end time as well for our age of Israel. So, since they were so disobedient, would God, and they weren't keeping his holy days properly. Now you go back to Isaiah 1 and see that. Now, whether he was upset with the manner in which they were keeping them, or the time at which they were keeping them, uh, it's not sure there in Isaiah 1 which way it was, and it could have been both. But at the beginning of Isaiah, they may have still had a 360-day year. That's a possibility. So, and he started writing about 692 uh, B.C., and if the change occurred at 687, uh, it was just after... Isaiah wrote that, so it may have been the manner in which they were keeping that, that Isaiah was concerned about. But it is apparently during that period of time, according to other sources, as well as Velikovsky just lays it all out, and if you're prone to such, you can go to the Chinese and Assyrian and Babylonian and Persian and Mayan and on and on and on. Uh, ancient histories and search this out for yourself. But I think we'll see enough evidence in the Bible that it is indeed the case. Uh, these, this is just a backup, but I wanted to show that all of these ancient cultures indicated a change, and it was about the time of Hezekiah. So that 10-degree change in the sundial made a, may have made a huge difference. And life suddenly became much more difficult. If you're not keeping the holy days right, God changes the calendar and says, Okay, you figure it out. You do it. You can't keep my days. Now you figure out when, if you can, and try to go from there. I asked you a question earlier. Because this comes up fairly frequently when people start trying to defend the, the Hebrew calendar. They say that God shows his faithfulness in the Hebrew calculated calendar. That's one of their big arguments. Does God show his faithfulness in the Hebrew calculated calendar? They say, some of the rabbis, and it's been quoted by defenders of the calendar, that God whispered the calendar in Moses' ear. 
gave all the rules and everything about how to find and how to know when the holy days come with postponements and Sivan 6 for Pentecost. That's a fixed date, you know. They keep Pentecost on Sivan 6. You can't count 50, because if you count from the Sabbath just prior to or during the Days of Unleavened Bread, uh, you'll come up with a different date for Pentecost every year. But the Jews insist on Sivan 6, which is against Scripture. Scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35, I think it is. There are a lot of things there that suddenly come into account. If God gave Moses the perfect godly calendar, why then have the rabbis kept changing it millennium after millennium and century after century? The present day Hebrew calculated calendar, highest day in the change of the year, it was not used by Christ himself. How do I know that? I know it simply because the Hebrew calendar as we know it today did not exist then. It wasn't there in its present day form. Now, it may have been there in some kind of form, but in the 3rd century, or 4th century would be, the 300s after Christ, Hillel got rid of a lot of data from different rabbis and chose what he thought was the best way to have a calendar. So he changed it. And then in the 12th century, Maimonides changed it some more. So what they have today that they're trying to defend is not the same thing that was in Christ's day or prior to that. They admit it's been changed. Not only that, they follow what they call the Molad, which is the 29.53 days, and they don't recognize in their calendar calculations whether that particular month was a 29 or a 30-day month. They just take the average and go with that. Well, this is the way it averages out. Well, that would impact a holy day if it was a 29 or a 30-day month, wouldn't it? By a day? Well, that's okay. We'll just go by the average. And that's what they do. They don't go by the actual new moon in any time in calculating their calendar. So how can it be whispered by God if it's been changed so much and does not resemble now what it did in Christ's day? He kept the Passover a day earlier than the Jews did, if you recall. Called it the Jews' day, and they were in such a hurry to get him off the stake before sundown because their holy day was beginning and his had already occurred. And everything important had happened on the 14th. So, how can God's faithfulness be shown in the Hebrew calculated calendar? If the Jews change it continually, how can God's faithfulness be in that? Let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. 
Now, there's several psalms that allude to this, but this just puts it in so many words, so I want to read this. Psalm 89, <clears throat> verse 2. For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shall you establish in the very heavens. God's faithfulness is shown in the heavens. Not by some calendar that the Jews concocted and changed from time to time. And they are they were considering changing it again right now because of the... 217 uh, and 237 or whatever it is days of, uh, of uh, or years in which the 19-year cycle is off and so on, as I explained last week. But he says his faithfulness is in the heavens. That's where you look to see God's faithfulness. His words, not mine. Now go back to Genesis 8. Now, here's where we have the story of the ark, and I think it is a very important one to consider. Genesis 8, I want to get to the end of it first, because it coincides with uh, Psalm 89, 2. Chapter 8, verse 22. God makes a promise after the flood is all done and mankind is wandering the earth again. He says, while the earth remains... Long as the earth is here, seed time and harvest, that would be spring and fall, cold and heat, recognizing a change in seasons, summer and winter, two more seasons, you have seed time and harvest, spring and fall, and here you have summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So he's saying here that the days will remain. It has to include the months, and it certainly includes the four seasons that will remain. That will not change. Now again, let's review. I think I read it last week, but I'll, I'll hit it briefly here. Genesis 1.14. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. <clears throat> so we know night and day are controlled by the heavens. And let them be for signs, waymarks, ways of knowing, and for moeds, or months, or how to calculate holy days, is all bound up in that word, and for days and for years. So here he says that the lights that he put in the heavens are there to delineate days, months, seasons, and years. Those are the four elements of a calendar. In other words, the calendar is in the heavens. The Jews have perverted that and have added things on the earth to what God said. And even so-called calendar people within the church add things that are not in the heavens. Have you ever seen a barley harvest in the heavens? Do they grow barley on the moon or Venus or somewhere? No. Now, he did tell them there in Exodus 12 that the Passover was to be kept in the month that they came out of Mitzrayim, 
And that month is Abib. Abib means green ears. And just prior to that, maybe I marked it, I'll, maybe I should run back there. Um, well, Exodus 23.15 is, is one. I did mark this. 23.15. <clears throat> no, that's not right. Maybe I'm looking for 12. Oh, I'm in Genesis. That makes a difference. Let's go to Exodus. 23, verse 15. Yeah. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you, in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it came you from Mitzrayim, and none shall appear before me empty. Uh, he says the same thing back in Exodus 12. I don't think I wrote that down, but it's here somewhere. Well, let's not take the time to find it. We've already read it there. But there is one back here where it says that it was a time when the barley would be ripe, but the wheat would not because it would be out of season. So there's an oblique reference to barley and the green ears as being the time of year, generally, when Passover would be kept. Now that doesn't mean you had to sit and watch until the barley was ripe, because the heavens tell you the exact month, the exact day. It's all up there. The barley just gives you the season in which it occurs, so they didn't make a mistake. The harvest year, the fiscal year, ended in the fall with the Jews because of the major harvest at the end of the year, they, he called it, or the revolution of the year in Exodus 34:22. So, uh, atonement announced the jubilee at that season of the year. So he wanted to be sure they understood that they were to keep the calendar in the first month, Abib, as a time of the green ears, when the barley harvest ripened, which was in the spring. But you're, you're falling into a huge error if you try to find ripe barley and then base the calendar on that, because you're looking for a new moon, and if you're doing observance of first crescent, you're watching for the first crescent to appear, and then you're gnashing your teeth over whether the barley's going to be ripe or not. It's not the way you do it. The barley harvest could be ripe over quite a span of time, depending on how cold the weather was, how much rain there had been, how much sunshine there was, when they got it in the ground, and how fast it matured. So that could change from year to year easily. It wouldn't be ripe every year at the same day. Now, the Jews have perverted that by including it as part of the calendar, <clears throat> and now they plant barley in greenhouses in Jerusalem, in the Middle East at least, and try to get it to ripen exactly when they think the Passover ought to be. That is an inexact science. <laughs> Can't happen that way. So... Barley is not in the heavens. 
Everything you need to calculate the calendar is right there, Genesis 1.14 says, in the heavens. Barley merely demarcated the time of year that the first month would occur. But the new moon gives you the month, sundown gives you a day, and of course the equinox is involved as well. So let's understand that the heaven, the heavenly calendar is just that. And God's faithfulness is shown in the heavens. Now, we've come to Genesis 8 and read the last one, which coincides with, last verse of 8, which coincides with Psalm 89.2, to see that God expresses his faithfulness here at the end of Genesis, and then has David mention it specifically in the Psalms. Now, this paper I read this morning, which I just received a few days ago by email, purports that in Genesis 8 and 9, there was an eight, uh, a 385-day year, which would be uh, 13 months, if you use 365 and a quarter. Uh, I went through it, uh, went through the paper, looked at his charts, and read Genesis 8 and 9, and I don't see it in here at all. Uh, they mention two 150-day periods, and that is not here in the Scripture. Uh, it does mention a 150-day period, and let's look at that, because it will show that there were 30-day months at that time when Noah was building the ark and while he was on it. <clears throat> let's go back to... Chapter 7, he's telling Noah here to take the animals onto the ark. And it mentions he was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. In that paper, they try to show that his birthday was the first day of the year, day one of Nisan or Abib. The Bible does not state that. It does state in here that uh, the waters had assuaged and so on by the first month and the first day of the month. Uh, and they try to go from his birthday, which the Bible doesn't give, to the beginning of the next year, uh, and say there's 385 days in there. But let's look at it and see what it actually says. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, does it give you his birthday there? Say which day and month it is? I don't see it. It just says it was in his 600th year. You are in a particular year, are you not? Whether it be 25 or 83. And you consider yourself X number of years old throughout that entire year, do you not? Now you're getting older by the day, but you still say you're 36 from your birthday, which marks the beginning of 36, until your 37th. You still say, I'm 36. Herbert Armstrong liked to talk about how old he was, so he'd say, I'm, I'm not 36, I'm in my 37th year. Well, or 82nd or 83rd or whatever. But you still refer to yourself. So when it says the 600th year of Noah, he's not giving a specific date. You have to put that in there yourself, because it isn't there. If you want to do what these guys said. Anyway, it was in his 600th year. In the second month, 
the seventeenth day of the month. The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So he says on the second month, seventeenth day, things changed. Waters began to be the key factor in terms of life on earth. Heavens were opened and the depths underneath the crust of the earth began to come forth in probably not springs, but in huge rivers of water coming out of the depths of the earth. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Uh, they add that forty days and forty nights before they start counting the hundred and fifty. It's crazy what they do. Anyway, it says it started on that day and it rained for forty days and nights. And that was the selfsame day that Noah and Shem and his family got on the ark. They didn't need to get on until it started raining. When it started raining, they said, hey, let's get in, shut the door, it's time. Same day. They and the cattle and so on went in. He had them corralled apparently or there, or they had become docile and were standing around waiting, who knows. But that's the day Noah and the animals went aboard. Why go on ahead of time and start having to feed the animals? Why not leave them out where they can graze and be fed outside? And then when the rain starts, put them in. That's what it says. The flood was 40 days on the earth. The waters increased. And at some point there, the ark floated. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. Now notice verse 19, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. They went fifteen cubits above the mountains. Now verse 24 is important. It says, And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred fifty days. Okay? From the time it began to rain and the fountains were broken up and the water began to prevail as the key factor that everybody could see, while it prevailed was 150 days. Now, it was stopped. The rain stopped after 40 days, but the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Verse chapter 8, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. So the wind started coming, and the waters began to diminish a little, began to evaporate, be affected by the wind. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of the 150 days, the 150 days, not two 150-day periods, the waters were abated and the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. So he says, <clears throat> from the second month, 17th day, to the seventh month, 17th day, that's five months, right? From the time the waters started until the ark settled on land was five months. And we saw in verse 24 of chapter 7 that that was 150 days. 
That would be five months of 30 days each. You cannot have five months of 30 days each with a 365 and a quarter day year. The numbers don't work. The math won't work. So this indicates that there was five months of exactly 150 days. So that means there was a 30-day month. It wasn't 29.53 or 29 or 30 (coughs) varying from month to month, but an exact number. Now they try to show that there was 150 days of rain and then the water going away. Uh, and another 150 days while it got dry. But that's not what this says. After it says it rested on the mountain of Ararat, uh, notice verse 5, the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. So it landed in the seventh month, and the waters kept going down to the tenth month. That's about three more months. On the first day of the month, two and a half anyway. But... On the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So, it had dropped enough by the 150th day that the ark settled on a high mountain, Ararat. Two and a half months roughly later, the tops of the other mountains were seen. So, the waters were going down slowly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days... So 40 more days, there's uh, two and a half, three, oh, well, a month and ten more days that he sent out, or he opened a window. He sent forth a raven, and the raven couldn't find a, didn't come. So he sent forth a dove to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground, but the dove found no rest. He stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent the fourth the dove out. Verse 10, And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, there was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew the days the waters were abated from off the earth. So we have a, an abatement in stages, okay? It's, it keeps going down, down, down. It's abated. Now a dove can find an olive leaf. But it's not completely abated yet. He stayed yet other seven days and sent forth a dove, which returned not again to him anymore. So there's, what, 21 days there. The raven, the dove, dove coming back, dove going back out, and then the dove doesn't come back after seven days. So it came to pass in the 601st year, so it had, trans, it had gone on into past Noah's birthday, into the 601st year of his life, In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So here we have then, from the 150 days that ended up there when the ark landed, 163 days, if I calculated right, until he took the top off and the ground was dry, at least around the ark. But it wasn't dry everywhere yet. Read on. And in the second month of the seven and twentieth day, so it's been over a year now, second month, twenty-seventh day, started raining on the second month, seventeenth day. So 
we've seen that there was a 360-day year, so this was 370 days later. And God spoke to Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark. So they left 370 days after they got on. Why 370? That's a curious number. We know from Numbers 14.34 that a day is reckoned as a year. And Noah was on the ark 360 days a year, plus 10. I think that is interesting. Now, this is speculation. I don't know that I could prove this ever. It might someday mean something, but maybe it doesn't either. I don't know. But the thought occurred... What was the problem on earth? The breaking of God's commandments. From Adam and Eve and their idolatry with Satan, to Cain killing Abel, murder, and all the commandments of God had been broken by mankind. So God gave them a flood that lasted 360 days a year, a day is a year, and added ten. Did he add ten because of his ten commandments? Here's the reason I gave you this punishment that lasted a year, my ten laws. I don't know. Just a thought. Maybe maybe means nothing, and I certainly don't think of any way that I could prove that. But it just is strange that the whole thing worked out 370 days. Why the extra ten over a year? I don't know. Just a thought. So, we have proof here that there was a 360-day year at Noah's time. Now, there's another interesting one in uh, 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel 20. This one is cited by calendar people sometimes. But I think there's something very interesting to note here. Let's start with verse 5 of 1 Samuel 20. Now here, David had fled from Saul because he was afraid for his life. Saul was threatening to kill him again. And he was very close with Jonathan. They were like brothers. In fact, Scripture even says they were in some ways closer than a man and a woman even. They were, uh, it doesn't mean there was a queerdom there. It means that they were just very, very close, like brothers and more. <coughs> anyway, uh, David had told uh, Jonathan in verse 3 that there is but a step between me and death. In other words, when Saul starts throwing spears and various things, if I'm a step slow, I'm dead. So he said, this, this is a very dangerous situation I'm in. And David said in verse 5 to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field under the third day at even. <clears throat> There's something here that people tend to miss. How did he know? that the next evening would be the new moon. If they were going by first crescent, and you had a 29 or 30 day month, 
and you had to wait until the conjunction occurred and the first crescent appeared, you couldn't know ahead of time. And even though some Jews in some periods of history used the first crescent because they didn't have any better knowledge, they had to wait. And then they lit bonfires, if you've read the stories, to get word out that this is New Moon Day. The new moon has occurred. We saw the crescent. We have witnesses. And spread the word fast, as you can, by camel, donkey, or fire. <laughs> that one must have been a very difficult situation and could only be handled locally. But here it states plainly that David knew a day ahead of time when the new moon would occur. In his day, and he was before Hezekiah, remember, it either still occurred every 30 days, so he would know automatically, it's been 29 days, tomorrow's the 30th day. He could declare it ahead of time. Can't do that with the first crescent. Just can't do it. Well, they say, well, it was a Sabbath because he's supposed to be there at New Moon Day and he'd be missed. Well, that's uh, he would be missed on New Moon Day. Uh, Verse 18, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you shall be missed, because your seat will be empty. Go on down to verse 24, So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon was come, the king sat him down to eat meat. It was expected. knew it was coming. Verse 27, And it came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Where comes, Wherefore comes not the son of Jesse to meet, neither yesterday nor today? David was expected to be there every day. He may have been expected a little more so on the new moon, because it was a day that they kept uh, to keep the calendar in line and so on. But he was expected there the second day as well. But the main point I wanted to make was they knew ahead of time when the new moon would be. So they either had to have had still the 30-day month, or they had to have had the capacity to uh, determine or calculate when the new moon would be. Now, the Jews don't really calculate it. They just follow the average. So they call it their calculated Hebrew calendar, but they fall short of actually calculating the time of the conjunction. They just average it. And the average could put them a day short or a day long. But they don't care. And if they don't like the day it falls on, they just put it off a day or two anyway. There are scriptures that show back-to-back Sabbaths. I didn't write them down. One's in John 6, I think, which shows uh, the last great day was coming on a Friday with the Sabbath the next day. The Hebrew calculated calendar does not allow that. Now, there are a lot of problems with the Hebrew calculated calendar, and it certainly doesn't show God's faithfulness. Uh, it doesn't even show the faithfulness of the Jews, because they're continually changing it. Well, is there something else here I wanted to cover today? I think that's pretty much it. 
but uh, I wanted to take this time to give you some background to show what an astronomer said about everything being on the same plane and having, uh, therefore, an eclipse every month, of what history shows about the times that various cultures change the calendar, and again, how they knew ahead of time when the new moon would be, and uh, of course from Genesis, but the Bible clearly shows there was a five-month period of exactly 150 days. So we can see from history that the 360-day calendar did exist. It was good. Everything was divisible. Now we have not gotten into the bones and the understanding of exactly how the heavens work. But I thought some background is important first, and then we will see how God's faithfulness is shown up there and how simple it is to calculate or to watch and observe and then follow what the heavens tell us to do. And I can show you that the heavens then and the way that that was set up will show us uh, that the equinox is important, the conjunction of the moon is important, and so on. So we'll get to those details perhaps next week. But I wanted to lay this background first so that we understand that when we look at the prophecies, which are written, part of them at least, before the change in the heavens, about what is coming when it will change back to 1260 or 360 days uh, again in the future, at least by the time the Great Tribulation starts in the 1260-42 months and three and a half years begins. So if you establish that it will be, and you see from the Scriptures that it was, now we have an interim period here which is very confusing and trying to figure out what the heavens are saying is an inexact science at best. God muddied the waters, and He did it on purpose, but He did not do it in such a way that His faithfulness is impaired, and we'll see that.